Welcome one and all to Vision on Sound here on Fab Radio International with me, Martin Holmes. This week we welcome Graham Ward, yet another new voice to the ever-expanding list of contributors to the Vision on Sound pool of talent. And whilst we do start off today with my usual introductory interrogation about his own fascinating earliest television memories and so forth, we very swiftly move on to the topic that he primarily wanted to talk very fondly about, which is the television screenwriting career of Richard Carpenter, who, after a brief career as a jobbing actor in the 1960s, is possibly best known to the general public these days for his work on HTV's stunning Robin of Sherwood. That particularly high-profile 1980s hit still appears regularly on the daytime ITV channels, but of course fans of his work will also remember such delights as Cat Weasel, The Ghosts of Motley Hall, The Adventures of Dick Turpin, a large contribution to The Adventures of Black Beauty and The Famous Five, and the swashbuckling adventures of Smuggler and Adventurer, and he could very much stake a claim for having reimagined the children's historical adventure series, most often on the ITV channels, for more than one generation. Richard Carpenter sadly passed away in 2012, but leaves behind him a huge legacy of television work, which, whilst remaining much loved by generations of archive TV fans like the people who listen to this show, is still being discovered by new generations of fans even today. So with all of that to look forward to, why don't I fire up the more conventional time travel technology of our Fab Radio International time engines and see what Graham has to tell us. Hello, Graham. How the heck are you? Hello, Martin. I'm very well and very pleased to be here. Thank you for Yes, inviting. indeed. Well, welcome aboard. You've uh, listened to a lot of the shows, which is always a plus, and we decided that you might have a lot to actually say about certain things. So uh, before we start, what sort of vintage are we talking about? What, what, if it's not too impersonal a question, when, when were you born? Uh, 68. I was born in 68. 68. So, so you're so, sort so, of late uh, just, just before the invasion. Uh, in Doctor Who right. started, to put it in okay. a context that we understand. Actually, we're probably going to be talking about more or less the same kind of era of television, because I, I watched kids' TV much longer than I should have done for a start. Yes, <laughs> I, I still I'm am. about th- three or four years older than you. So we are, you know, generally in that era. What sort of stuff do you remember watching? Have you got a first television memory? Um, well, no, because TV has always been there. My mother tells me hmm. I was huge on Andy Pandy and the flower right. pot men mm-hmm. but i don't really have any memories of that um no. obviously my first memory so that, that that little couple of hours before the news would play school yeah. and blue peter and all yeah. those shows those are the things mm-hmm. i kind of remember the first mm-hmm. show i really got interested in was the six million dollar man ah right and then that's that's interesting because I, I funnily enough i've been watching the six million dollar man recently right. which is it's it's I, kind of parts of it haven't aged well but it's it's actually it was a cracking no piece of well, i haven't deliberately i deliberately haven't watched it since all, all these things became available again but what was it about the television that drew you in then was it 
<laughs> I hesitate to say for a lot of people, was it the babysitter? Or was it just that it was what you were interested in and you wanted to watch it a lot, if well, you see what I'm saying? Well, for me, it was... I mean, there was um, several kids. There was four of us, and my mother mm. was also a childminder and foster mother. So right. there was always, like, a huge amount of kids. Mm. I found if if, well, if the telly was on and I could focus on the telly, I was taken out of this chaos mm. and into my own little universe. I could ignore everything going on to the side of mm. me, even if there were kids screaming. I was, mm. I, it just, it allowed me to focus on something mm. external that wasn't as chaotic as the home life was. I mean, it wasn't a bad life, it was fun, but sometimes mm. you, you, you want a bit of peace and quiet. You want the thing that's you, you want the thing that belongs to you kind of thing. Yeah, and the, te the TV was the only thing that shuts up, really. Yeah. Did your siblings, did they have different interests from you or, or were you all very, very similar if you see what I'm driving um, well, I think we're all very similar because mm. we obviously only had one TV in those days. Yeah. And whatever was on was what we were watching, which was yeah. led more by my mum and dad, what we were right. allowed to watch and what we weren't. My yeah. dad hated Doctor Who, so mm. he had a Saturday night job. So if he was out mm. working, we could watch mm. Doctor Who. And if he wasn't... Right. We couldn't. So I only ever saw half of the Doctor Who serials. I never saw a complete one. Right. So for me, there was thousands of missing episodes. Yeah, yeah. yeah because I just only saw... But wasn't there a kind of in-room hierarchy? I mean, were you... You know, if, if there were four kids in the room, who got the say over what you yeah, actually watched? I was second oldest, so I was second in ah. line for choice. I had to hope right. my brother went out with his mates to, to, to get control of the knob. <laughs> but, um, yeah, it's... Right. Um, but it was, yeah, my parents, they basically, they set us on that BBC, yeah. like, hour or two mm. segment before the news. And they said, that's your lot. Mm. When that's finished, mm. it's all our programs. We're in charge. Yeah. Right. Like, we come home from school, got to watch that, and that was it. It was slightly different okay. on weekends, obviously. But, no, my parents mm. were quite strict about what we were allowed to watch and what we weren't. Right. That's interesting. Well, there was always young again, that kids. That comes from an era, doesn't it? You know, because there were so many kids. Oh, so basically, what was the age range of you? I mean, was there you yeah. weren't supposed to upset the younger ones? Or yeah, something when like that? was that? When part? my yeah. elder brother was ten, my younger brother would have been. Hang on, yeah, he would have been one. So right, so there's quite a spread of ages there. Yeah, and, and there were other that. younger kids as well when my mum was childminding and stuff. So we had mm. to be careful about what was on the TV. Mm. Obviously, that little section of BBC programmes was always safe to have on. So that was the default kids' programming that we got to see. But then, you know, if my dad was out, my mum would let us watch Doctor Who or whatever, you know, Basil Brush and yeah. Dick Turpin, which we'll come to soon, I think. But you've become a fan of television. Did your siblings become fans of television? What was it that made you become more fascinated by this box in the corner and want to know more about what else was going on with shows what was it that made you that person do you think was there a particular show that you just i wanted to know more about it or anything like that not at the time i was a kid no um no i mean it was just my my escape from the chaos mm. then but it was um well it's once things started to become available to rewatch. yeah the i think first video uh, pre-recorded video I bought was the Five Doctors. Okay. Um, and so I wasn't really... I used to record a lot of things off of TV, mainly like Harryhausen films that were on late at night and, yeah. you know, the old Beast and 20,000 Fathoms. I was just recording old yeah, yeah. films because yeah. I figured the new ones would keep coming around for years, mm. which wasn't necessarily true. But, yeah, I was recording old mm. stuff 
and that and then as soon as they started re-releasing Doctor Who because I'd got I'd gone off Doctor mm. Who in the Colin Baker mm. era I'm afraid to say because my mm. I was mid-teens and it wasn't a trendy yeah. show at that point no absolutely you know people um, just thought it was a bit silly and daft and yeah. why are you watching that rubbish and here's some football I know I used to get that a lot myself yeah. exactly so when so when this video started coming out I had a lot to catch up mm. on and that is when mm. I kind of realised how important that show was to me mm. it's, the, it's the show that we all talked about at school and, and got all yeah. excited about I can remember I can remember pretend drowning my mate after the deadly assassin was on <laughs> Ah, so she was right. She probably was right. <laughs> I mean, pretend drowning, obviously, in the playground with no water, but it was just, that's just, that's my first White House was right all along. Oh, my God, yes. Yeah. That is my first memory of Doctor Who. I can't remember when I started watching it, but that's when I, right. that's when I can, I know I, I was watching it from, hmm. at least. But, um, yeah, it just, yeah. it was the wave of nostalgia that made me realise how much, TV had but meant to me. Kind of, there's a leap, though, isn't there? There is a leap from enjoying a programme to enjoying television and all that kind of thing to actually going, I'm going to go and spend my pocket money or, or my birthday money or whatever on a videotape of a particular show. Mm. It's kind of a stepping stone, if you like. It's, it's like leaping off a cliff because once you realise you've started that collector thing off... Were you buying the Doctor Who books before that? Were you, were you interested in it as a as a literary medium, or was it you know the program or or the fact that that tape was available that really excited you? Well, I had read while Doctor Who was while I was at school, I was getting the mm. Target books from the school library. Right, mm. um, but I was I never bought any of my own because of money. Mm. All my money went on mm. vinyl records. Yeah, at the time singles. I'd had a paper round and. Yeah. Apart from the odd Mars bar, it was always on music. Yeah. I had the attitude that TV was on and then it was gone mm. um, at that time. Didn't really mm. um, delve deep into who the actors were mm. and the background yeah. or anything of that at, at mm. all at the time. It never really occurred mm. to me mm. at the time. It was just this fantasy adventure world you could slip into mm. from time to time. Mm. So none of that sort of interested me until much later mm. in life. Um, when I could start re-watching old stuff, and that in- instantly mm. I could watch old stuff that had a mm. tinge of nostalgia, it suddenly became right. something much more magical to me, much more right. magical. Did it trigger something, do you think, then? Because obviously we all, of that generation, we kind of grew up with all these memories of all these shows that we all used to watch, mm. you know, Time Slip, Cat Weasel, whatever it was, and we did sort of talk about them, we did sort of remember them, but it wasn't wasn't that big a deal and then suddenly these shows were available and suddenly the floodgates open and of course you know they saw us coming as it were <laughs> ka-ching you know they've made a fortune out of us ever since but it, it i think there was a change wasn't there? home video really made a difference to people who had enjoyed old television there were magazines about that you could you know, read about these shows. Yeah. When I was sort of writing my thesis, it was it was about stuff from books because I I never thought I'd see these shows. Yeah. I thought that well, the people had talked about them and written about them, but I didn't think we'd ever see them. And then nowadays, you can go out and at least see some of Quatermass, and it still oh. boggles the mind to me that I was writing about it, thinking I would never see it. Yes, no, I, that did make a huge change when you could see these things again mm. because um, mm. I, I'm not I I find it very difficult to read about something if I can't see it. Mm. Um, I can't... It's, I just find it frustrating if I'm reading about all yeah. these things that are making me think, oh, that would have been really good to see, mm. and I can't see it. I do it now mm. when there are... I mean, like A for Andromeda, I can't read about A for Andromeda because it just frustrates no. me so much. 
Yeah. But, so it's as soon as you could see them again. And uh, I mean, there was a. It wasn't a great time in my life. It was a struggle. Mm. My twenties were, mm. which was mainly due to the nineties. Mm. And that was the era I started getting into old TV because it was also mm. a time when I was happy. Mm. Um, and it it was just nice to go back to that mm. era. There was a warmth, wasn't there, from sort of television in the 70s that when we were growing I mean, it really did. Again, it did feel not like necessarily the babysitter word is probably not appropriate, but it felt like a friend. You kind of, you called in on your friends, possibly because that's how we understood and interpreted television back then. Do you find buying it or having acquired it or being able to see it, do you feel that somehow it's still as good as you thought it was when you actually see it on the whole do you still find it enjoyable in the way i know you can't watch it as a child no. anymore but do you still find those shows that you remembered when you got them to see did you think oh actually this isn't half bad you know yeah i mean i've recently been quite surprised how well things like fireball xl5 mm. and stingray stand up as mm. storytelling yes there, there's a lot of really good storytelling in those that mm -hmm. um it's not just oh the puppets i remember these puppets they were mm -hmm. great they really mm -hmm. i really loved them and i like seeing them now mm -hmm. for nostalgia no some of the stories mm -hmm. are actually pretty good i mean mm -hmm. they are for kids which is why mm -hmm. i find it so surprising that so much effort had gone into that side of it mm -hmm. some of the kids shows today i don't really have a plot I'm quite impressed, actually, in the early 60s, generally, uh, from things like Danger Man as well. But that sense of the half-hour drama, where you could tell an entire story in 25 minutes, mm. you know, have a proper opening, have all the action happen, have the story enclosed and closed off within a 25-minute time frame. And that actually went across from things like Danger Man into mm. shows for children, like Fireball XL5, like Stingray. I mean, I know in the end, Thunderbirds went, to the 50-minute format later. But those 25-minute tight stories were such a good, solid training ground for so many writers yeah. that when they actually went into, I hate to say grown-up telly, but, you know, what used to be considered not children's television, those skills came. They still came and you know into those other areas. I think that's a fascinating aspect of how the history of writing for television adapted in a very short amount yes. of time you know yes. i mean when you think about it, even quatermass in its earliest incarnation is half hour episodes yeah i mean it, they're not self-contained stories they're serial but the half hour format really did it honed a lot of people's writing yeah and sometimes later shows can actually feel a bit flabby because of that yeah well thunderbirds is the great is a good example of that mm. because that was the only one i think until they did the mm. live action that was that long and mm. that you can that is the only one that kind of drags it in places. I mean, it's mm. a great show, mm. and they, they kind of disguise it when it drags by having huge mm. launch sequences over and over again, <laughs> which which the character love, work, yes. love. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> bits of characterization, which in some ways made it more endearing historically, but actually at the time we were probably all going, "Oh, stop it with the Tintin rubbish!" Yeah. <laughs> yes. No, oh, he loves true. Tintin. Blah blah blah. Get on with. It. Show me another rocket. <laughs> yeah, and it, yeah, but that's it. You did get you. You never really had any subplots in that. 25 minute thing because it wasn't i mean no. you, you could if the writer was particularly mm. skilled or with something like doctor mm. who where you had companions mm. to do another adventure mm. while the main one mm. was going on but and that because mm. that was serialized these stories weren't mm. 25 minutes long mm. from start to end they mm. were an episode was 
that long. Mm. So they were telling longer stories and they could have subplots mm. in. But mm. Fireball XL5 it is just straight to the meat of the action from start to mm. finish. Yeah, I love that opening sequence. I mean, I know, you know, I know now when you see it on high definition disc and what have you, you can see more of the faults. But actually, just that whole sequence is such a clever. Mm. piece of bringing you into the storyline straight away yeah. every week sort of was it a minute and a half or whatever it is mm. that launch just says yep this is what we are yeah. now we've touched briefly on the anderson series we've touched briefly on doctor who we've touched briefly on some other areas of television mm. but the, what the specific area of television you wanted to talk about today was one particular writer and his contribution throughout the 70s really and into the 80s so um do you want to tell us a little bit about richard carpenter yes richard uh, i always refer to him as kip carpenter be, to, to not okay. be confused with a certain drummer who had some minor success i believe <laughs> yes yeah, so i was i was going to ask you about his sister <laughs> <laughs> but uh, yeah he was i mean he's um the reason i loved richard carpenter was all his shows seem to be set in the countryside outside mm. um, and they were all very adventurous mm. and, and obviously with a lot of magic involved in them i mm. just found that setting just beautiful to watch on mm. the screen where did you grow up i grew up in brentwood in essex which is a right. satellite commuter town but we are surrounded mm. by a lot of country parks because we're right mm. on the m25 we well we weren't yeah. then but yeah it's lots of greenbelt land around us. Yeah. So so you, you felt it was a, an environment that you recognised. It wasn't that thing where it was a, yeah. a sort of environment that was completely removed from your life. If you went out playing, you could see similar yeah. kind of scenery. Yeah, I only I only had to go a couple of hundred yards and I was at the corner of a huge country park. Yeah. Funnily enough, down the other end of that country park hmm. was um, Martin Shaw from The Professionals Lived. Oh, right. And I used to deliver his papers. <laughs> and it, it meant nothing to me until until about 10 years later. And I thought, oh, the yeah. guy, oh, this is the guy. I've oh, seen right. professionals on some ITV right. repeat or somewhere. So he didn't have to do sort of forward rolls down the driveway no, or anything no. like I that? I never saw him. Never saw him. He, he yeah. had a huge fence around his place and yeah. dumped his papers in a letterbox. Fair enough. He picked it up later. So, But he was, he was a good tipper. Was a good tipper. Oh, well, that's good. Yeah. That's good. But, um, <laughs> you just had this, this vision of him sitting in his, in his driveway, sort of going, right, I've got the target. The target's in. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, quite target quite, acquired. Yeah. He's coming. He's got a paper. He's got a paper. That might have made me very nervous doing that. But, uh, <laughs> yeah, but that, Probably best you didn't know. that country park, we could just go, you could go and get lost in there. Yeah. You know, you could spend hours just walking through different woods and fields and yeah. there's a fishing lake in there. It's like this. I was so I was quite used to having a country park as an escape. Mm. Which, so when I could see it on the TV, mm. Cat Weasel started out in the forest. I mean, Robin the Sherwood, Dick Turpin, Smuggler, they're all yeah. set in the countryside. Mm. Absolutely love how it looks on the screen. Because mm. it's not, no, mm. there's no, like, see, you can tell when something's a set. Mm. Well, what I love about certainly Cat Weasel is that it's it is all shot on film, which again is one of the reasons these series have survived. Is there seem to be with Carpenter's work, it seemed to be the instinct was to shoot it on film, and that has helped preserve it. Now, I would have thought you were slightly too young for Cat Weasel, but it must have caught your imagination. Well, it was repeats. I mean, mm. uh, yeah, I would have been two or three, I think, when it finished. Mm. But I, mm. there would have been repeats on. I can't remember mm. how old I was when I first saw it. But mm. it's one of those shows where I've just always got like a folk memory of. Mm. I don't remember first seeing it. 
it was a case of mm. oh cat weasels come on i haven't seen that for a while mm. and that's like probably mm. the first memory i would have of it mm. but if we go back a bit because mm. richard carpenter did have an acting career he did yes indeed. um i haven't been able to find much that still survives no um, he's one of the he went uh, well let's get this do because he was born in 1929 Mm. This is Kings Lynn in Norfolk, so a very right. countryfied area, really. Yeah. But he went to the old Vic and then did the old repertory route yeah. into television. He did make a few films. But the first thing I could find was him in The Bowmans. Oh, Tony right. Hancock. Oh, the, the Hancock. Yeah, I don't know if you've heard that episode. It's, it it's very funny. Oh, yes. Yeah. It's based From on the, the arches, isn't it? When he went out on his own, oh, it's one of my favourites, yeah. yeah. <laughs> With a guy at the end. It's got Peter Glaze in it as the dog. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's so funny. But near the end, the character, who the only surviving character, because he kills mm-hmm. off all the other characters. Spoilers, sorry. Uh, but, um, <laughs> we've, we've had our fair yeah, chance to it, watch it. It ends with him telling, talking to Richard Carpenter. That's, right. That was the first time thing I could find of his. Mm. Um but he's done Zed Cars and Dixon of Doc Green, and, yeah. and they don't exist anymore. The jobbing actor in the 60s, yeah. Yeah. Well, unless didn't, they turn didn't up... Gideon's I mean, you... Way, I've got that, but I haven't got to an episode oh, with right. him in yet. Right. Sherlock Holmes with Peter Cushing, he did one of them. Mm-hmm. And The Baron. I've got... Mm. Um, I don't know if you've seen Knight Errant. Knight Errant. Yeah, he's... No, I didn't ever get hold of that Well, oh, there's only two episodes left, and the show was mm. on for so long that the, mm. they've got an episode from near the beginning and near the end, and it's a complete cast <sighs> change. So there is one, and fortunately, Richard Carpenter and the other assistant, rather than Knight, who the show was about, mm. they take the lead in that episode. Oh, okay. So it's not a great example of the show, but it is a good way of seeing Richard Carpenter act. Wow, okay. But it's like you've got to buy the DVD just for two episodes. Yeah, but does he... Because, um, I mean, a fair few actors in that era decided that they were they were going to try writing for this television lot. Do we know why he sort of switched over to the writing? Was it just something that felt like the right thing for him? Or is there is there any kind of history written about what made him change? It seems to be performing more to that he was disillusioned with acting. Right. I don't think he ever progressed beyond supporting roles. Yeah. There is one film, Clash by Night, in which he mm. does take a lead role. Mm-hmm. He's um, that has a named character. Yeah, he's a pri- well, he's a prison guard, <laughs> right? And there's two prison guards transporting this busload of criminals to prison, mm-hmm. but they get hijacked because there's a gang mm-hmm. boss on there, and the criminals come and rescue the gang boss, and so mm-hmm. they don't get the word out. They lock them in a barn covered in gasoline, mm-hmm. and say there are people outside ready to set light to it. So everybody right. else has to stay in the barn. And that's where the whole film takes place. Oh, okay. And and the other prison guard gets killed quite early. So Richard Carpenter yeah. is in charge of these minor criminals who are all kind of want to escape, but they're too scared because they think the mm. barn will go up. Um, right. So it's quite a re- it's, it's a really tense piece. Mm. Peter Salas is in that. Right. Um, he plays a disturbed man who's well, he's killed a girl because he doesn't really mm. understand what he was doing. Sort of thing. Yeah. Peter Salis will turn up a couple of times in um, mm. Carpenter shows. Mm. So they obviously made friends. Yeah, um, yeah. But I mean, there's not really a lot. So he was in Terranauts, but yeah. I haven't seen that. But he's in there. If you see, no. see the trailer, his line is mm. he's looking at a radar and says, Look! That's all he says in the trailer. That's all you get. <laughs> 
so I need to see that. I think Terranauts was one of those ones that used to turn up in the summer holidays from time to time, and you'd just sort of park yourself in front of it if you were that kind of kid, really. Yeah, I, yeah, I, I just never got... But that, I think that was one of the last films he made. He started making films in 61, mm. and it seems to have ended mm. with Terranauts in 67. I always have this vision of actors who become writers sort of sitting there getting their latest script and just looking at it and going oh i could write better than this and then some of them going off that's why right, maybe he I'll got do disillusioned it. with acting not because he wasn't progressing mm. in his career but more because he was thinking mm. you know what this script is i could improve mm. this mm. i i know why this is film isn't working mm. maybe but it does seem that cat weasel comes pretty much out of nowhere doesn't it because it's it's such a magical creation literally but it does seem to come from absolutely nowhere and yet suddenly here we have this 13 part beautiful series yeah i think he had done a little bit of writing before mm. cat weasel maybe bits and pieces because but yeah. the thing is cat weasel cat weasel won a british writers guild award mm. and it went down really well and that may mm. have been the only thing he ever did, really. But mm. it, but it, it went over so well, he was then bombarded mm. with requests for more. Mm. So he started out in 69, and his last film mm. was about 67. Mm. He's, he's obviously spent some time thinking about what to do and mm. writing Cat Weasel. Mm. I don't know why, really, he went, other than he, he was fed up with acting and, and obviously wanted to stay within the mm. industry. But he proved to be very good at it. Yeah, well, this is it, isn't it? Because, I mean, it, it's kind of like, you know, from a virtual standing start to actually get this commission to do this full series and have it be such an enormous success. It's almost, shall we say, like a, like a dream come true, I suppose. I don't know whether it felt like a dream come true at the time. But it, it does feel like... A bit of a miracle, and you know, yeah. Cat Weasel sort of deals with miracles. It, it is a dream come true for him, really. I mean, we had two seasons of Cat Weasel. Um, what was it as a child that made Cat Weasel to you so enjoyable? Do you think? Well, it was it was the mischief, really. I mean, some some mm. Cat Weasel can actually be a little bit dark. He's quite willing mm. to kill Cat Weasel, some, but he mm. never does. He's always talked out mm. of it by Carrot. Mm. But um, no, it was just it was. This guy out of time and out of place, I always mm. felt like an outsider as mm. a kid. Different interests to um, yeah. the average. But, um, yeah, that, that was it. Cat Weasel was this... Mm. He, was, outside. he was lost in a world mm. that he didn't understand. Mm. I always think it'd be interesting, actually, if you reverse that and if you, as a modern person got dumped in the medieval world mm. we'd be just as out of place really and and again i suspect the daily sort of <laughs> general murder and stuff would probably have kind of been part and parcel of, of life in those times I, there's a very good book actually the time traveler's guide to medieval england oh, yeah. which sort of tells you what it was like to be living in that that era as, from a historical perspective or if you were visiting what you might have to do and it is an astonishingly brutal time yes to be alive really you know? yeah yes yeah, so it's 11th century cat weasel was from so you would carry that with you from from then to now so the character in itself would have had medieval ideas and that mm. putting that against modern things like telephones and and cars and things it really is what's that What's that, um, is it Arthur C. Clarke quote about magic, indiscernible from magic? Or yes, something? yeah, yeah. It's any technology you don't understand mm. is magic. That's roughly mm. the idea of the quote, isn't it? Mm. Um, mm. But, uh, I mean, the idea, calling electricery and the telling bone. That's right. There's an eternal logic there mm. for a cat weasel. 
those names work better than these mm. strange names he doesn't understand. And he puts it all down to magic. We would do the same. Yeah, as children, it kind of, you feel that the, the, the clever words and the, and the silly words, it's got such a broad appeal, Cat Weasel, hasn't it? Yeah, yes, it definitely has. I mean, it's, it's got such a great cast as well. That, I mean, Cat mm. Weasel was perfect for kids. Mm. He, um, Jeffrey Bowden, sorry, was he was absolutely, I mean, his performance, mm. that's exactly how I would expect an 11th century wizard to behave. In <laughs> I mean, it's not something you would have ever thought about mm. until you see it, but you think, no, obviously mm. that's correct. That there's, mm. there's, um, there's no doubt that is what Cat Weasel would be like in real life. Mm. Um, it's a magnificent performance, isn't it? I mean, Bailden is one of those actors that you always feel should have been better known. I mean, I know he turns up in all sorts mm. of things as various bureaucrats and what yeah. have you. And obviously the Crow Man in uh, Wizard of Gummidge later on. But I think it, it's a career-defining performance, Cat Weasel, isn't it? And it feels special and it feels like... It feels like him. It feels like his. he owns that. I mean, I know they have done a remake of Cat Weasel. And I know some people hate it, some people don't mind it, but it's kind of, you can't really quite picture anybody else playing the part. And I think no. that is the clever thing in a lot of television. I always feel it's much the same with a character like Steed in The Avengers. You can't really imagine anybody else playing it, and that probably means that it was pretty much definitive. Yeah, no, I totally. I mean, if you watch the first episode of Cat Weasel, there is a slight element of William Hartnell's performance Mm. in the early days of Doctor Who in there. Mm. Some of the mannerisms and, and little um, mm. noises he makes. And, uh, mm. But he really... F I, I don't know whether he was like, I had the chance to play Doctor Who, but I turned it down. Mm. This is kind of mm. like maybe exercising any regrets he had. This is mm. him. He's, he's the okay. lead. He's an eccentric mm. figure in a, in a strange, mm. unknown world. It's as mm. close to Doctor Who as he ever would have got, I guess. Mm having turned it down um yeah but uh by the second episode he's found cat weasel more he's mm. more uniquely jeffrey mm. bowden's performance and mm. just trying to get through because he obviously the first episode you don't really know mm. how you're going to end up with this character mm. you still mm. formulate i know they would have had rehearsals but these things are shot yeah. quite quickly aren't they mm. especially on locations Mm. But um, he did. There's, there's um, his, his little fizzy fizzing. He calls it. Mm. Um, little, that came in the second episode. Once he kind of mm. stopped, he got over the Doctor mm. Who regret that he had. I, I believe anyway. Mm. Um, but yeah, once he'd found it, that there was no looking back. Yeah. Do you think though that that is the the magic of it? In the sense that was that on the page or was that the actor or was it a combination of both? Do you feel? Do you know? Do you, do you think that what he brought to it made Cat Weasel more special or was the specialness of Cat Weasel already on the page? Uh, Carpenter has said that Bailden added a lot to it, mm. mm -hmm. but it's got Bailden has said that he took everything from the page. Mm. So it's like it's basically Carpenter was happy with Bailden's interpretation of his work. Mm. But, you mm. know, but they they each put it down to the other person. They, they're kind of mm. very generous like that. They they worked mm. really well. There's only two episodes of Cat Weasel that Jeffrey Bowden wasn't very happy with, and neither of them are mm. written by Richard Carpenter. And that's, ah, that's what he puts it down to, why they don't work. Mm. Oh, okay. They got on very, very well. They had a shared vision for Cat Weasel. Mm. And also, um, you have to mention Quentin Lawrence, the mm. producer and director of the first season, 
he yes. did set a lot of it in stone and mm. give it the atmosphere it needed. Mm. Um, he wasn't there for the second season, but... It... No. Do you feel that the second series perhaps was kind of an afterthought? It had been successful, so we'd better do another one, rather than... Do you, do you feel actually that the self-contained nature of that first series, it probably feels perfect as it is, and maybe because some people dislike the second series more than the first, it doesn't feel quite the same. It feels like a forced format, if you like. Yeah, I can I can accept that viewpoint. I don't dislike it, but mm. I always prefer the first season. Mm. But I'm assuming they went that way mm. because going back to the farm would feel like a repeating the same thing again because it is, as you say, quite mm. a self-contained story in that yes. first season. The second one has more continuity in it with the adventures are all about mm. finding these zodiac sides. Yes. Which it doesn't really need because that tends to make each episode kind of like an, a for, very formulaic. And mm. They find this what zodiac mm. they're looking for and they find a way mm. to nick it, basically. Mm. So it is a little bit more formulaic, the mm. second season. And that's kind of why I prefer the first one. It's a bit more random. Yeah. But it does tell a story, and at the end, it's successful and has a proper closure to it. The second series, there's like, oh, we'll do a bit more of this, and it feels more forced. I think the only thing I can say about the second series is I can vividly, vividly remember the scene with the balloon watching that on first transmission. You know, right at the end of the series, that yeah. really stuck with me. And so it obviously was something that I was still watching at that age. So, you know, it, it still was interesting enough to mm. me. And again, sometimes it's, it's easy to be over-analytical and say, oh, well, the second series was... But, you know, as a kid, brilliant. Yeah. Loved it. More Cat Weasel. Yeah. That's all I wanted, really. Yeah, I would. I would. So moving on, Richard Carpenter moved on from Cat Weasel, and the next big success, really, seems to have been The, the Ghosts of Motley Hall. Were you a fan of The Ghosts of Motley? Very much so. I will say... There was going to be a third season of Cat Weasel. They were they mm. never got past the draft, but they were going to go back to the farm. So maybe the production mm. felt again that the second mm. season didn't quite work. But mm. but yeah, they, I mean, apart from a, he did seventeen episodes of Black Beauty between mm. Cat Weasel and Ghosts of Motley Hall. Now yeah, that explains a lot, actually, doesn't it? Yeah. I mean, I I don't know about you. I you know <laughs> when I was that sort of age a horse-based programme probably wouldn't have appealed to me, no. <laughs> generally speaking. And yet I watched no, I it. I did see a lot of them because my sister wanted yeah. to watch them. So yeah. we did see a lot. But yeah, it wasn't for me. I watched a lot of Black Beauty and I, I sort of wonder why, really, because it really probably wasn't something that appealed to me. But it was still the same thing that Carpenter did so well was to put a little bit of jeopardy and a little bit of adventure and throw yeah. a little few extra elements into the mix and tell these stories. And I think now you come to mention it, there seems to be a lot of things like his later series, like Dick Turpin and what have you, in those Black Beauty adventures, really. You know, oh. now I'm actually sort of coming to think about it. I, again, yeah. it's a countryside weirdly, the game, isn't it? Yeah. I mean, I wouldn't have touched Follyfoot with a barge pole, which no. you know, <laughs> I still haven't. No, but this is it. So it, I must have been drawn to. The Adventures of Black Beauty for reasons other than just the horse-based drama, if you like it. It had other things going on. Yeah. I mean, the um, the whole thing about you know the squire and his family and everything that all just seemed to be more interesting. And sometimes I think that's what Carpenter does. He actually mm. makes the characters interesting yeah. for but you as the I viewer. Mean, it's only fifty-two episodes, and he wrote seventeen of them. So mm. not being it's his show, quarter. that's, a, that's, that's yeah. quite a lot of episodes. I did notice mm. one of the episodes he did, uh, Neil McCarthy, who was the farmhand in mm. Cat Weasel, 
mm. turns up in that episode or, or mm-hmm. one of those. I've seen, I haven't mm. seen, it's the only one I've seen. I looked at one for research mm. a little while ago and I noticed Neil McCarthy, which mm. I believe he's used a couple of times, but he does use actors again. And Peter mm. Salis was in Cat Weasel, who he'd worked with mm. on that film. But yeah, I mean, Cat Weasel was 71, it finished, and Ghost mm. of Motley Hall didn't start till 76. So mm. he spent a lot of time doing Black Beauty. Mm. But he also did, mm. in between, he did Cloudburst for the BBC Schools programming. Oh, okay. And he presented 10 episodes of that. Well, there was only 10 episodes. Oh, right. He wrote okay. and di- presented them. Mm. So he was working writing for other people. So this is mm. obviously due to the Writers Guild Award he got. It was for mm. best TV children's TV drama script. Mm. So it's the it's, you know, mm. it's the one that writers will want, isn't it? And of course, there were the novels as well, weren't there? The novelizations. Yes. And things, yeah, he did. He did. Also, he did them for Robin and Sherwood and Dick Turpin as well, didn't he? Mm. But he was with Quentin Lawrence again for Ghosts of Motley Hall, producing mm-hmm. and directing. But there's quite a lot more of that. Mm. There was three series and the Christmas special, mm. twenty episodes in all. So mm. there was more cat weasel, wasn't there? There was thirteen mm. each series, yeah. But um, mm. I mean, if you look at ghosts now, the BBC sitcom mm. now, it, it it is ghosts of Motley Hall, isn't it? Almost entirely. Mm. You've got you've got the one mm. regular character who can see the ghosts, played by Peter mm. Alice, mm. and then a group of ghosts all from different eras, mm. who kind of muddle along. I mean, I've I've recently been watching Motley Hall, and I Neil McCarthy's in that as well. Yeah, right. He plays like a, a, a spook hunter, like a very scientific right. one, almost like a Nigel Neal character. Mm. But uh, yeah, the ghost hunter with the with the technological apparatus, oh, like the guy bit, in bit, the like, train, like Tully in Sapphire and Steel, that yeah, kind of yeah, character. That, that's that it. Kind of thing. That's right, him, yeah. Yeah. Mm. Um, I love all that. The, the stone yeah. tapes and um, the Doctor mm. Who episodes, Hyde and mm. Village of the Angels. With that, they've all got mm. characters that are. Searching for ghosts with the latest mm. technological equipment, which to us is period. I, I really like well, I that sort of that. that but Ghost of Motley just works again, doesn't it? Again, this is the thing that Carpenter had. He, he could actually sort of pick something that would appeal to the age group of the people who are watching those shows. Yeah. And, you know, I mean, we've had, you know, Ghost of Mrs. Muir, we've had Randall and Hopkirk's shows like that. Mm. So the ghost thing sort of works. And again, like you said, Ghosts goes back. To that basic format and does yeah. it again. I, th- I think there were so many ghosts in the seventies because they had discovered mm. how to make people disappear with CSO. <laughs> and it was just mm. the technology had driven that. Oh, so so we can make people fade in and out mm. now. And um, I'm pretty sure that's why there were so many ghosts in the seventies. <laughs> There's a bit of a shunky one in the opening Blackadder, but let's not go. No, yeah. <laughs> it is uh, Peter Cook, so we forgive it. Oh, lot, we forgive but, anything. Uh, if it's, if it's giving us Peter Cook. Precisely. But uh, but no, just very clever but, uh, show. Yeah, I do like the uh, the, the Christmas special of uh, mm-hmm. Ghosts of Motley Hall. I love the title. Mm. It, it's Phantomime. Mm. It's such a good title. But the writing is really tight in these... Um, yeah. It's not... I mean, the, the episodes themselves, yeah, the stories that they tell you, but it's mm. like the care in the setup that gives mm. you so many story options in Cat Weasel and mm. Motley Hall. There, there are endless possibilities mm. there with that mm. careful setup to tell all these wonderful stories. I think it's interesting, again, from looking at that era, because also you get Rent-A-Ghost, which is a, mm. in some ways a lot more studio-based and a lot more 
it's a lot sillier. And I think the, the thing about mm. Ghosts of Motley is it has an essential truth inside it. It has some poignancy in the same way Ghosts has later. It, and the characters in it are just very clever. I mean, Arthur English, you know, Sheila Stiefel, they're just really cleverly written characters and beautifully performed by very good actors. Yeah, perfectly cast. I mean, Arthur English is a foal. Um, Freddie Jones mm. as um, uh, Lord Uproar. Mm. They're perfect, perfectly cast. It's. Um, I, I wish there was more of them, but I also wish there was kind of more ghosts in there because mm. those characters are very, very good, and I can only imagine mm. more characters being just as good. But mm. you know, budgets and time constraints, and you, you probably mm-hmm. would have overloaded it if I was in charge. So, um, <laughs> well, but, there we go. Over they ghosts. all had their own little story that, that was interesting. I mean, she mm. was Stiefel. She didn't know who she was. She'd been there mm. so long. She was just known as the white mm. lady. You can put any story on top of that, can't you? Yeah, absolutely. So then we move on to uh, Dick Turpin. Now, I, I've been trying to get someone to come on the show and talk about Dick Turpin for a very long time. And uh, Richard O'Sullivan, of course. Yes. Which is one of the TV stars of the 70s, really. Yeah, it's huge. He was in, what, two or three sitcoms? I can't remember how many, but he was... Dick yeah. Turpin was where I kind of... I love Richard O'Sullivan. I think he was absolutely mm. fantastic. Dick Turpin introduced me to Swashbuckling as well. Mm. There's a little bit of it in Cat Weasel, but mm. uh, that was mainly him running away from Normans mm. and their broadswords. But Dick Turpin, they, they were jumping on tables and pushing them over and chandeliers and all that, you know. Mm. I That blew me away when I saw that. That was the most mm. exciting thing I'd seen for... I mean, I was obviously, I was into Six Million Dollar Man, but that was, mm. that didn't have the atmosphere that Dick Turpin no. had. I absolutely loved it. I just feel it's the quintessential action show for yeah. children. It feels, it has all the right elements. I mean, you can set aside, shall we say, the reality of the life of Dick Turpin. Let's, you know, yeah. it's taking the elements of highwaymen, you know, yeah. swords, pursuit, escapes captures all that kind of thing and it just turns it into a cracking little half hour sunday night adventure series or saturday night adventure series depending on when you got to see it of course but uh, it's just a lovely did a clever thing and set it the year Mm. after the real dick turpin had died so Mm. he didn't have to have anything to do with dick turpin really dick turpin Mm. was just a fictional character to him really Mm. that that he could base some elements on Mm. but um yeah, he wasn't the Dick Turpin of legend. Or mm. he was he was Richard Carpenter's Dick Turpin. Mm. So he could be a good... Because Dick Turpin wasn't a good guy. No, no. I just think it's interesting, though, that... Was it Dick Turpin that replaced Six Million Dollar Man in, in Looking for the, the strip that Martin Asprey was drawing? I think And I just think... Yeah. I think it's, it's just... That, to me, fascinates me that the kids who've just had five years of bionics mm. were suddenly drawn into this completely different world, This, in a way that maybe they probably might not have watched the Sunday classic serial, mm. but you know, still the horses and the sword play and everything like that just really appealed. For I mean, it ran for about five years, didn't it, Dick Turpin, more or less? Uh, no, uh, three years. Oh, did he three not? Years. Three, three years. years. Um, three. But there was only, technically there's only two seasons. But mm. they kind of stretched it out into four. Mm. Uh, 1979, they had 13 episodes of the first season. Mm. 1980, seven episodes of season two. Mm. Um, they didn't show the last six that they'd made. 
then because in right. 1981 because they'd made a movie that was shown in u.s okay. cinemas i can't remember the company oh rko it was rko right uh so um and they showed that over here in 1981 as a five-part serial Mm-hmm. I know over there it was obviously a one complete movie. And mm. then in 1982, there was the final six episodes of season two. Right. So they kind of chopped it up a little bit. Yeah. And and obviously the last six episodes were filmed before. The, this serial is called, the five-part serial is called Dick Turpin's mm. Greatest Adventure. Mm. And it's just a five, well, obviously one complete story cut up, whereas mm. all the other episodes are standalones. Mm. Except for mm. the fox, which is the first two episodes of season two, which was oh, right. my favourite. It's where they he he gets captured by some some lord, and uh, mm. he they they decide to hunt him like a fox. Mm. Uh, so they basically let him out with no defence yeah. on the estate and choke. Wow, that's him. basically the most dangerous game, but with a twist. <laughs> yes, <laughs> wow, yeah. yeah, but yeah. So um, they had they kind of filmed it out of order to what they showed it in. Mm. That's a very bad way of putting it, but you know what I mean. Mm. Um, but I mean, the cast. Well, that's that, it. Oh. I think this is the thing. I, I got the impression it was on over a longer period of time than it actually was. It just, it, yeah. well, that's, you say, if they were showing it in unusual ways, that's not surprising. I think you're right. Yeah, three three years makes more sense. But, but for some reason, yeah. I felt like it was on air for about five years. Maybe it was a Granada thing. Well, I, don't I mean, yeah, I mean, ITV didn't get things being broadcast at the same time up north as down south, did you, sometimes? Mm. And. Um, I don't know. I'm assuming these dates are for the first time they were broadcast. But I mean, it was LWT, so was that that was all mm. over the country, wasn't it? Oh no, it was London weekend. Yes. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. It's just that sometimes network choices were yeah. delayed and, and yeah. moved around but, and mean, everything it, like that. So I mean, everybody in that era was always complaining about how many repeats were on. So it probably was on for mm. five years because they probably mm. repeated the 1982 series <laughs> for a couple of years after that. So mm. while they, you know, they would have, sometimes they repeat in old things and then you watch the new thing, then you watch another old thing, mm. then you watch the new mm. thing that had been repeated. It was like you, you didn't mm. always get them in the right order anyway. Mm. But Carpenter certainly had the uh, the ear of looking because he worked on Famous Five and they had a comic strip as well, didn't they? I think that's the one that replaced Space 1999. <laughs> yes. I, yeah. Oh, would I love the Catweasel comic? It's kind of... He was obviously the go-to guy for youth programming, children's programming, children's adventure programming that actually appealed for ITV. Did he do much work for the BBC apart from the school stuff, do you know? Not that I know of. All of his major yeah. serials were on ITV. Mm. But yeah, I and mean, again, this is part of the problem sometimes with the archiving, isn't it? That some stuff doesn't get released because it was yeah. made by particular production companies and yeah. everything like that, and and it's sometimes quite hard to get hold of. So um, before we uh, move on to our to uh, Robin Hood, I just wanted to briefly ask you about Doctor Snuggles. Okay, I was too old when Doctor Snuggles was on the telly. Mm. Um, although it was my, I because I thought it was like a early to mid eighties show but mm. it actually was 1979 so i obviously mm. didn't see it then but i mm. haven't watched i know ne- i never watched dr snuggles it's friend. weird to me as a cartoon series because i actually remember coming home from school and i did watch dr snuggles because i kind of got i think it was that cynical teenage what the actual is this <laughs> if you see what i'm saying yeah but then you find out that contributors like 
Richard Carpenter, but but mm. Douglas Adams were both involved in this show. Yeah, it has a heck of a pedigree writing wise. Mm. I mean, whether or not whether or not it's any good is a different kind of thing. But yeah, there were but some that does make you incredible shows. That yeah. does make you want to see because you know you fall in love with this writer over all these other shows, and you think, well, mm. I've, I've dismissed that too early. I should have a look, mm. and maybe it is mm. too late because you're not five or six anymore. But um, it, it it is, you can watch these things for a curiosity value rather than having an entertainment value, can't you? Mm. So moving on, uh, I was just going to say, Smuggler came after right. Dick Turpin. Mm-hmm. Um, Oliver Tobias, who had appeared in Dick Turpin, but that I don't know too much about that because mm. I didn't watch it at the time but mm. that was it's it's almost like Dick Turpin but with a, with a little bit more testosterone mm. was that for a, a later time slot was it Don't or was it just it was because it to be honest we'd moved into more cynical <laughs> cynical yeah. times I, yeah it's I mean again I mean Roar's time he, he, he gets yeah. involved in espionage between England and France right. um, it's just the the Oliver Tobias thing I always think that everybody seems to connect him to the stud <laughs> so it's kind of like every every story and article you read about it was just to say that the children's hero that used to be in this soft porn movie <laughs> <laughs> yeah I mean it, it, it seems to be an odd connection but there we yeah. go yeah he played he played a Rather nasty villain in Turpin, um, but mm. and he he is he is an anti-hero and smuggler. He is yeah. he is a band. But this is see the thing about smugglers it links Dick Turpin and Robin and Sherwood because they're all bandits, mm. um, but they're good guys, mm. uh, and they're all live in a forest basically. Although mm. smuggler has um, his little cabin, but um, mm. they're all there was another see. Uh, Oliver Tobias came back after Robin and Sherwood for the adventure, mm. or it's called Adventurer. There is a series right. called The Adventurer, which is a different thing. But um, that's all set in Australia, where he gets deported. Right. Um, and there's a shipwreck, and the only survivors are him and his one other, who probably buys it quite early, and his brother-in-law, who is the captain of the ship that sunk, and was in charge mm. of taking him to Australia to all the, you know, the working punishment, whatever it is mm. that the deportees had to do. Um, mm. So it's just basically one man after another through that series. And mm. I've not seen it, unfortunately, but I would love to. But that was about 86. Mm. So Smuggler did have a legacy, but mainly mm. for the Australians. He did do things in Australia, like whinging Pom. Mm. He did yeah. for out there. But, um, yeah, I don't know too much more about Strokes. Did he actually move to Australia at any point, or was it just he was just writing and sending it? Do we know whether he spent any time actually living out there? I don't know. I would imagine he no. did go, because he did a few mm. things out there. But mm. you could have written this from your bedroom in Norfolk, yeah. You could. There's a whole book to be written on the uh, the Australian and British television connections and, and yeah. how how things sometimes got remade. I mean, you only have to think of something like Wizzle Gummidge Down Under, really, for the... I mean, no, that was New Zealand, but it's kind of like shows that had a second life in Australia, really. Yeah, but interestingly enough, I just noticed that... Jack Vincent, his name is in Smuggler, he gets transported to Norfolk Island in Australia, ah. which obviously he's born in Norfolk. 
So I'd imagine mm. that just caught his eye on the map when he was writing it. Mm. But um, yeah, um, it's it does link. It's like I see these Dick Turpin, Smuggler, and Robin of Sherwood as a trilogy mm. Mm. because of the settings and the the characters mm. are all like anti-heroes. Yeah, like. yeah, they're they're they're, mm. they're bandits or they're villains, but they're mm. actually good. They're good guys. Mm. And you don't often get the villain as you get raffles and things, you know. But I you, think we live in times where the bad guys becoming the good guys seems more and more relevant at the moment. To be yeah, honest, in terms yeah. of society, so so I, I, maybe maybe these things are, are worth revisiting. But uh, Robin Hood was a massive, ma- Robin of Sherwood was a massive oh, mid eighties yeah. phenomenon, wasn't it? I mean, it, and again, that was definitely aimed at a more adult audience. Yes, it was. Yeah. Um, it was, I think, it was on about like five, six o'clock in the evening. But it was, mm. it was, um, it was a little bit darker again than Dick Turpin. Mm. It had more magic than Dick Turpin. That's the one thing Dick Turpin did lack was was the magic of Cat Weasel. Mm. But it came back with her and the Hunter in Robin and Sherwood. Mm. Uh, very mystical, and it gave it such a great atmosphere. But it was also, it was very hard action in it as well. Mm. Uh, Ian Sharp, who directed Minder and the Professionals. Mm. Um, and who dares wins? Mm. Oh right. Um, which, which actually, he was in the frame for directing Highlander later, mm. but um, the Americans didn't want. Oh no, it was an American and a British company. The Americans mm. wanted Ian Sharp, but the British considered him a right-wing fascist because ah. of Who Dares Wins' right-wing reputation. It's being seen as oh, a right-wing okay. film. I can't remember it that well, so I can't. Mm. But I don't think it was anything Ian Sharp meant. It was just that was the type mm. of film he was asked to make. Mm. But that uh, cost well, him the, to be honest, it cost him the directorship of Highlander. That's that's really weird, isn't yeah. it? Because when you think of how many very very brutal American shows there are, yeah, yeah. he also directed Cat's yeah. Eyes as well, which I vaguely right. remember from the time. Yeah, Cat's Eyes is one of those want to see can't get round to shows because yeah. it seems to be. Wrapped up in all sorts of rights issues, yeah. but uh, but also also should mention Paul Knight was the producer mm. of Dick Turpin and Robin Sherwood mm. and I believe Smuggler. Yeah, mm. he was. So Paul Knight and Richard Carpenter were a team during these mm. serials, and mm. and the production values of Robin of Sherwood, they're still some of the best production values. You you well, they they hold up. I mean, it still occasionally gets repeated on. ITV3 doesn't it in, mm. in the daytimes and you look at it and you think god this is again there's one of those things about period dramas don't date somehow in the same way there might, no, you know, yeah. there might be if you've got the costumes be, right and everything yeah 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 and it's a very strong series I mean the only real thing that seems to have caused Robin of Sherwood a problem is, is losing its lead actor after after the first yes. production yeah. that does flatten that last series for me um but there are there are as many Jason Connery ones as there are Michael Prade ones. Mm. Even though he only did the third season, that that third season's twice as long as the first two. Mm. I'm not sure why that is, mm. but um, I. But it really got into the zeitgeist, didn't it? That's the thing about yes, Robin of Sherwood. It, it really, I mean, people really took to it, and like you say, the, the whole sort of thing about the mysticism and what have you. But it really felt like it was tuning into something that we needed in in the mid '80s, particularly, which was a very yes. cynical, very, very selfish kind of time. Yeah. Suddenly, people found this outlet with Robin of Sherwood, and it suddenly it felt right, and it worked really well. And of course, some incredible actors who came out of that show who went on to be enormous in other things. Yeah. Yeah, just looking at the cast, obviously Michael Prade 
was perfect for Robin. He had that mm. that um, that mystical element to his personality. Mm. He looked like a wood elf. Mm. Um, he was brilliant. Um, but Ray Winston was perfect as mm. as Will Scarlet. I mean, I don't know what Will Scarlet was really like, or you know, no. or the first fictionalized account of Will Scarlet. But, mm. but he's just he was just he was just so up for a fight more so mm. than um, uh, Little John, who was Clive Matter, mm. wasn't he? Um, mm. Phil Rose was a great tuck, but I mean, mm. Mark Ryan wasn't meant to be in the show for any more than the first episode, but he was so good mm. they had to keep him mm. for the whole run. Mm. And but this kind of in, reinvigorated. I mean, Robin Hood had kind of become this, you know, it, through the Richard Green, through the ITC shows, had become yeah. a, a very cartoon historical character and this basically said wipe that all away it's a very clever way of, of reinvigorating that and of course yeah. we've gone back and remade it it's been remade since the legend you know time mm. and again really now it's i mean obviously you know you've got the costner versions you've got the bbc version that came later it's i feel that robin hood would probably not have worked in those other versions had robin of sherwood not basically made it acceptable again you know it feels yeah, that it actually made it relevant again yeah i mean that mystical twist was really all that was that different from previous mm. versions wasn't it the, the what was the one before that the one with um paul darrow in it mm. that was the most oh, recent one legend before of that, was it? forest yeah. wasn't it? um mm. and that that was pretty much a straight elflin film type swashbuckling mm serious but the, this mm. magical element i mean the other place you get her and the hunter is box of delights isn't it mm. and they, they both have that same magical feel to them and again roughly the same era maybe we needed something in the 80s <laughs> yeah i think we did but uh, i mean we just we'd not long had sapphire and steel with things like that mm. have we we that that there's a lot of ghost stories in the 70s wasn't there and um mm. as we've said earlier but it, yeah it was it was like all it, for me. It was all building up to Robin of Sherwood mm. because it is the mm. perfect blend of action and magic mm. for me. Probably. I mean, uh, uh, several of my friends went off and joined the sealed knot battle reenactment society. <laughs> they, they were into Robin of Sherwood. Um, well, that that's one heck of a legacy. Sadly, we've pretty much rattled oh, through our man. hour, and we've and we've hardly even scratched the surface. So, I'd love to welcome you back to talk about some more of this stuff another time. But as as we stand, uh, be, you know, because of the nature of the hour long broadcast, unfortunately, yeah. I'm going to have to say goodbye. But thank you very much for your time today. Oh, thank you for uh, having Ray. me on. It's been, it's been, been it's fun. Been fun. Excellent. And uh, we, we well, like I say, we hope to have you back again soon. You take care. Yeah. Uh, thank you, Martin. Thank you. Take care. Graham Ward for joining us here on Vision on Sound to tell us all about the life and work of Richard Carpenter, the television writer. And we do hope that Graham will join us again on another occasion to talk about old telly. So that's another Vision on Sound over for the week. Before I go, I just need to thank everyone at Fab Radio International for everything they do to keep the electricery plugged in so that you can hear us screeching out of the squat boxes. And naturally, of course, my thanks go out to each and every one of you for listening. 
As ever, I have been Martin and this has been Vision on Sound. Goodbye for now and take care. Thank you.